Non abimus papam, until further notice. Today, Thursday, February 28th, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Pope Benedict leaves the Vatican and officially steps down as head of the Catholic Church. He leaves behind a mixed legacy and a host of challenges for his successor, one of them keeping up a seemingly newfound papal interest in the environment. But one observer says Benedict's legacy as the first green pope is all relative. There wasn't much competition. There hasn't been much said by the popes about the environment, um, really, for the last couple of thousand years. And later, Uruguay is wrestling with a host of social changes, like the legalization of marijuana. And at least one Uruguayan looks forward to growing her own. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For the international news media today, it seemed that all roads lead to Rome. But for one man, the Pope, all roads led out of Rome, specifically to the Vatican retreat of Castel Gandolfo, where Pope Benedict XVI officially retired today. From now on, the man once known as Joseph Ratzinger will be known as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Here are some of his final words as reigning Pope this afternoon. I would also like with my heart, with my prayers, with my reflections, with my inner strength, I would like to work for the common good and for the good of the Church, and I feel supported by your affection. Let's go forward for the good of the Church and the world. Thank you very much. Reporter Megan Williams is in Rome. I mean, it felt partly like a head of state leaving office or a rock star who's taking off to some secret hideaway in a helicopter. Kind of surreal. What is the mood there in Rome today? Well, yeah, I mean, it did, although a very old rock star, a very old and tired rock star. I mean, I think people felt uh, that they were living an historic event. It's extraordinary that a pope resigned. Uh, Obviously, it's the first time in centuries. But it it also is a kind of paradigm shift in the church that reflects modern times and, and that reflects the fact that Pope Benedict XVI was aware that he wasn't up to the task anymore, and he was willing to expose that, if you will, and step down and probably quite relieved. Um, So I think people were aware that it was something quite extraordinary. So with Benedict gone, there's technically no pope. Who's running the church? The church, in some ways, it's business as usual. I mean, the publication of uh, documents and the nominations of new bishops and approval of, of statutes for Catholic universities and that sort of thing, that is suspended. Also, uh, under long-standing church rules, which were updated by John Paul II, the Vatican Secretary of State, who's sort of the, the Vatican second in command, he's stepping down, as are heads of various Vatican congregations, in other words, ministries. So those, those leaders have all lost their job uh, as of 8 p.m. tonight. The person who has not lost his job is the uh, chamberlain of the 
Holy Roman Church. And he's basically taking over for the Secretary of State and he's running things. He's administering Vatican affairs. And the one other per- person who's still around is the head of the Apostolic Penitentiary. And he's the person who um, essentially ensures that forgiveness is available at all times to any sinner. Mm. So if people come come forward with you know their sins, they can they can be absolved by this person. So lots of talk now about the conclave that will elect a new pope. What's the timetable for choosing a new pope? The cardinals are going to meet for the first time on Monday, and they could uh, set the date as early as that first meeting. Uh, And that date could be as early as Friday. And if not Friday, perhaps Sunday. Most of the cardinals are in town. Today, when the pope addressed the cardinals, 144 were there. Uh, 115 are voting. Now, they have to be, of course, under the age of 80. But a lot of the men present today will be part of the conclave. So they don't really have to wait that much longer for all of them to get in town. So, Megan, today you've been talking to people in St. Peter's Square, uh, including one young Italian student. We're going to play a little of what she said in Italian, and then you can translate for us. Beh, diciamo che magari un papà differente per il semplice fatto che vorrei magari che ti prendesse le linee di una di una religione. She says uh, basically she'd like a different kind of pope, one that enters into the hearts of young people more than Benedict did. She said that a lot of young people felt quite distant from him, especially compared to Pope John Paul II. Megan Williams in Rome, thank you for your time. Thanks, Marco. With the Pope's seat officially vacant now, Catholics around the world are focusing on what comes next. Here are some voices of Catholics from India, Brazil, and Nigeria on what they'd like to see in their next pontiff. We begin at a church in Mumbai. And now return to your I believe that the Holy Father will bring back the faith to the church because the people of the Catholic world are, at this moment, their faith has been shaken by the situation of the world today and also by the resignation. People are a little confused, and I'm sure that the newly elected Holy Father will bring things back into perspective. I think the next Pope should be younger, because it's a really tough job, and he has to travel a lot. It's really complicated, so it's going to be a very heavy burden for him. When God feels it's appropriate, he'll make also a Nigerian a Pope. As we are saying, the choice is entirely directed by the Holy Spirit, and so the spirit directs where a new pope will come from, whether from Africa, Nigeria, Europe, or any part of the world. And one more voice we want to share with you, this one from Mexico, offering a very different perspective on what the next pope should do. I'm a Mexican woman, and what I think the new pope should do is to send to jail all the priests that have committed pedophile. Catholics from Mexico, Nigeria, Brazil, and India, and their views on what's on the agenda for the future pope. You heard the Pope's final public address a few minutes ago, but this was the sound of the Pope as he left the Vatican today. He took a helicopter the few miles down the road to Castel Gandolfo, a far cry from the electric car Benedict got as a gift from Renault recently. Before retiring, Benedict did develop a reputation as environmentally conscious. He was known to some as the first green pope for talking about climate change and the degradation of the environment as moral, spiritual concerns. But was it just talk or did Pope Benedict also walk the walk? Martin Palmer is head of the Alliance of Religions and Conservation. It's an organization that works with the U.N. Development Program to help religious groups develop environmental programs based on their core beliefs. 
Palmer thinks Benedict deserves to be called a green pope, almost by default. Partly one has to put it in the context that there wasn't much competition uh, in the sense that there hasn't been much said by the popes about the environment um, really for the last couple of thousand years. Um, Pope John Paul II began to touch on the subject but was always far more concerned in a sense with with the issue of human rights uh, given his background and, and where he'd come from. And I think also there was a particularly up until about 10 years ago very deep suspicion that to pay attention to nature uh, and its needs was somehow touching on paganism. And I think what was significant about Benedict was that he seemed to cut straight through that. Mm, I know Renault gave him an electric vehicle for his personal use last year. Concretely, what has uh, Pope Benedict uh, actually done for the environment, would you say? Very little. I mean, I think one has to be very blunt. The The Vatican did try to offset his flights, um, which, of course, were fairly considerable, by um, investing in a carbon offset program in a forest in Hungary. But that turned out to be a con, as, unfortunately, a great deal of the carbon trading tends to be. I think one of the things about the Pope is that he's not as powerful as as the outside world sometimes thinks, in the sense that, He can recommend, he can encourage, but he can't make local bishops or local archbishops or national uh, uh, um, episcopal conferences do things. He can recommend. And I think he's he's a theologian, really much more than a practical person, Marco. His, His interest is, why would we do this? It's for others, I think, to follow him and to say, and this is how we might do it. So it seems there's a lot going against any pope uh, who wants to talk about the environment. What, tell us what a pope could actually do for the environment and, and why people would listen to the pope on this issue. I think the first thing that he could do, and it was what we were hoping he would do, would be to say that something like the fate of the Amazon is a Catholic issue. Every single country that makes up the land of the Amazon uh, is officially a Catholic country. It's got the largest Catholic population in the world. And were the Pope to say, we as Catholics hold this lung, this treasure of the, of the planet in our hands, we have to take special responsibility for its protection. That would be an amazing message that would absolutely galvanize the, the Catholic world and strengthen so many organizations. And we are still hoping that the new Pope might go that way, but we have to wait and see. Well, Martin, thanks for your thoughts on this. Greatly appreciate it. It's been a delight, Marco. Martin Palmer is head of the Alliance of Religions and Conservation. And by the way, Benedict's resignation has inspired a range of responses by political cartoonists around the globe, some polite and reverential, others, you know, not so much. You can see a slideshow of those cartoons at theworld.org. Today, the U.S. Army private charged with sharing a trove of classified documents with the group WikiLeaks shed some light on why he did it. Bradley Manning spoke at a military hearing in Maryland. He also pleaded guilty to some of the charges against him. Arun Roth has been following the Manning case for the World and PBS Frontline. Arun, before we get to Manning's plea today, what did he have to say to the court? 
Well, it sounds like it was a pretty dramatic moment. It was actually a 35-page written statement that he had worked on. It took him over an hour to read, and honestly, it's going to be a while that we'll be digesting all of this. But mainly, he talked about the reasons why he did what he did. He admitted to leaking information to WikiLeaks. He talked about his time in Iraq and how he grew more and more disturbed over, over time with what he saw in Iraq, what he considered to be abuses. He said that, that the U.S. became obsessed with killing and capturing people rather than cooperating. He complained to his superiors, and he said that they did nothing. And most interestingly, he said that he actually took some of this information both to the Washington Post and the New York Times. It was essentially ignored. That's why he went to WikiLeaks. In his statement, did Manning uh, talk about at all uh, how he managed to obtain the documents in the first place? That was actually kind of remarkable, Marco, because he, what he described was a very lax security environment. Uh, he made copies of these files that supposedly he was not supposed to copy, but he said that making backups was pretty standard there. The system crashed regularly, so they all made backups, and they were kept apparently out in the open, and it was not a big deal. What he des- described was not a very tight security situation. So as we said, he entered uh, guilty pleas on some of the charges. Give us the details on what he pled to. Yeah, it was, it's sort of an odd approach. What it, he did what's called a naked plea, meaning that he did not actually, there was no negotiation with prosecutors. This was put in entirely by Bradley Manning on his own. He pleaded guilty to about half of the charges against him, but, but these were versions of the charges that were reduced, not the most serious charges. And in another case, the judge told him that, you know, you can't actually plead guilty to charges that you were not charged with. So some of that is going to be still considered. But he, did, he pleaded not guilty to the most serious charges, specifically aiding the enemy. So do any of the charges that he pled uh, guilty to still carry a possible life sentence? No. What he's looking at, what he's agreed to plead to, would carry a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Arun Rath, who's covering the Manning case for the world and PBS Frontline. Thank you. Thanks, Marco. Find more of Arun's ongoing coverage of the Bradley Manning case at theworld.org. And follow Arun on Twitter for the latest. He's at Arun Roth. That's spelled A-R-U-N-R-A-T-H. Still ahead on the program, we remember a truly outraged Frenchman on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Gay marriage, marijuana legalization, abortion rights, those are lightning rod issues here in the United States and in many other places, too. Yet the South American nation of Uruguay is tackling them all and all at once. Abortion is now legal there and marijuana sales and gay marriage are almost a done deal. Reporter Valeria Fernandez recently traveled home to Uruguay to see how these changes are viewed by an average Uruguayan family, her own. Political conversation and music in my old neighborhood in Montevideo. I've missed those sounds since I moved to the U.S. 13 years ago. But I went back for a few weeks recently, and I was curious to know what people were thinking about the country's flood of legislation from legalizing marijuana sales to gay marriage. I didn't have to look very far. The members of my family represent the full spectrum of Uruguayan politics, and they love to talk. That's my sister Gabby. She's 29, a high school music teacher and a trained singer who loves Brazilian classics. When I ask her about the marijuana legislation, she tells me she doesn't like that people will have to register to buy pot from the government. 
but she wouldn't mind growing her own. I like to have my own plant, maybe because it's organic, and I have many seeds that someone gave to me, and maybe I'm going to plant. Smoking porro, the South American slang for joint, isn't illegal in Uruguay, but growing pot is, and that would change under the legislation. Supporters say nationalizing marijuana sales will take away some of the market for drug traffickers, and it might help bring down the recent spike in drug-related crime. My father, a doctor, is all too aware of that trend. We are driving through Cerro Norte, a low-income neighborhood where he makes house calls. He points at a pile of sneakers hanging from a power line. He says this place is known for sales of cocaine paste. In his office, he tells me he's afraid drug-related violence is out of control in Uruguay. But he doesn't think legalizing marijuana is the way to go. This will only get worse, because the drug traffickers will stop smuggling marijuana and will produce more cocaine paste. But one change my father does support is Uruguay's new abortion law. As a doctor, he's seen the consequences of banning abortion. A woman would do an abortion at home, and she would risk dying out of shame. Abortion politics are complex here, just as they are in the U.S., Take my aunt Veronica. She's a biology professor who describes her politics as left of left. You might think she'll support legalized abortion, but she doesn't. I believe that life begins when it begins, when it took form, because I've been pregnant. I'm a mother. While my aunt doesn't like the abortion law, she does like the man who's presiding over these changes, President José Mujica. He's a former Tupamaro guerrilla, known as Pepe. But don't get my 78-year-old grandfather started on Pepe. My grandpa's a conservative ex-military man, and he distrusts anything coming from what he calls this communist government. Still, he's intrigued by the marijuana law. De repente, en teoría, puede ser que habría que aplaudir la, la situación. Maybe we should applaud this idea, he says. It reminds him of what Uruguay did when the U.S. enacted prohibition and banned the sale of alcohol. Uruguay decided to nationalize alcohol production to control the market. My grandfather says maybe nationalizing marijuana sales would work as well. I was surprised by that and by some of his other views on same-sex marriage. When I was growing up, people didn't talk about these issues. Now there is a thirst for dialogue, not only among political leaders, but across dining room tables of families like mine. And the conversations are far from predictable. For The World, I'm Valeria Fernandez in Montevideo, Uruguay. In Mexico, few seem to be rallying to support Elba Esther Gordillo. She's a powerful teachers' union boss who was arrested this week. After nearly 25 years with Gordillo at the helm, the union wasted no time today in electing one of her former lieutenants to replace her. Gordillo has been charged with embezzling some $160 million from union coffers. Many Mexicans are wondering what her arrest will mean for efforts to reform the country's corruption-riddled education system. Reporter Frank Contreras is in Mexico City. Everywhere you go in the streets of Mexico City, people are talking about it. I went downstairs just a few minutes ago to the butcher's shop uh, to pick up some fresh cuts, and they're talking about it. Across the street where they sell fresh-cut chicken and tortillas, corn tortillas, they're talking about it. And they were saying things like, 
We're really glad to see this extremely corrupt person finally behind bars. They took long enough. One guy said they should have done this years ago. Mm. So she basically, a lot of people said that she took away the social ladder for little children in some of the poorest regions of Mexico. Her arrest comes on the heels of a move by uh, President Enrique Peña Nieto to reform the education system there, reforms that uh, Ms. Gordillo opposed, apparently. What were those changes that uh, he's trying to implement, uh, President Nieto? The biggest, probably most important part of that was how teachers are recruited into the system. Basically, over the years, because of the power of this teachers' union, the teachers had the ability to sell their jobs to another person or even hand the job down to a son or a daughter. Let's say I was a teacher and and I was about to retire. I could hand my job down to my daughter as she became an adult, and then she would have a job. And the government would have no say over, you know, whether or not the person was qualified for the job or anything like that. I've read, Frank, that a primary public school teacher in Mexico with 10 years experience gets about $14,000 a year. Now, I, I know, you know, in context, that may seem like very little, but how well are teachers paid in Mexico? You know, they're not getting rich off it by any means. But the thing is, it's a guaranteed job. And once you're in that position, you get to keep it. Losing your job is almost impossible. So you're basically guaranteed that amount of income doesn't mean you can't have other kinds of work as well. And oftentimes teachers would do that. You know, they would not show up for classes and go to their other job and take in these two different salaries. And so, yes, this is a meager level of income that people were making here. Will the removal of this one person, uh, this union head, Ms. Gordillo, do anything to actually change an educational system that seems like it's got some really deep problems? We know that the The teachers union just named a few hours ago, named a new president, and he was somebody who was very close to this woman who is now in jail. He is somebody who's been in the power structure of the teachers union for many years now. And so that raises a lot of questions of whether or not he's going to want to see any serious reforms take place. We know that Enrique Peña Nieto was going to play hardball immediately, Marco, when he named his cabinet. He named Emilio Choi Fett as the Secretary of Education. Now, Choi Fett is a political hardliner in the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI. He's been around for years, and they use him whenever they need to basically end somebody's political career. That's what he's used for. He's a hatchet man, Mm. and he's in charge of the Secretary of Education. So it seemed to me that he was named in order to bring down Esther Gordillo. So they've done that now. Whether or not they can actually bring the kind of deep changes that Mexico's education needs, I think lots of people are, are wondering whether that will actually happen. We've been speaking with reporter Frank Contreras about the arrest of Elba Esther Gordillo, the head of Mexico's teachers union, who's been charged with embezzling some $160 million from union coffers. Frank, thanks a lot as always. Thank you, Marco. Take care. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a musical collaboration that spans the Atlantic. Cuban pianist Omar Sosa recalls hearing Italian horn player Paolo Fresu for the first time. And I remember in some moment I hear a trumpet and it was Paolo in the tree playing. Whoa. <laughs> I say the same thing. Wow. This is my man. I love this guy. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The United States joined 11 other nations today in agreeing to change the balance of power on the ground in Syria. At a meeting in Rome of the so-called Friends of Syria, Secretary of State John Kerry said the U.S. would for the first time provide non-lethal aid directly to rebels fighting the regime of President Bashar al-Assad. Kerry said, we do this because we need to stand on the side of those in this fight who want to see Syria rise again and see democracy and human rights. Amr al-Azam is a member of the Syrian opposition here in the States and a professor at Shawnee State University. Uh, Professor al-Azam, what is the goal here, do you think? Well, I think the goal here is uh, quite straightforward, is finally come to the realization that the only way to actually bring the regime to the negotiating table, to accepting a political resolution, is to actually degrade its military capability to the point where it sees no other option than than embracing that one. And in so doing, by increasing aid to the opposition, by providing what now we are calling non-lethal aid, all of these will help basically tip the balance in favor of the opposition and, in essence, make it that much harder for the regime to continue to fight and ultimately make the regime realize that the only option it has to come out of this in one piece is to negotiate a political settlement for itself. Secretary of State John Kerry's talking about food and medical supplies. I mean, I'm sure they'll be welcome, but will that really change the balance of power in Syria? I think what we people have to understand is that whilst the U.S. is the U.S. itself is willing to supply only non-lethal for its own reasons. Um, you can be sure that other countries, it's, it's like a, there's a, a, an unwritten nod and a wink to the uh, other states that are involved in this, regional actors and other European countries, perhaps like Great Britain or France, to basically step up their supply of the more lethal kind. That is all being done fairly clandestinely. Amr Alizam, let me ask you this, since you're a member of the opposition here in the States, isn't there a potential that the rebels could view this aid from the U.S., this non-lethal aid, as just a bunch of bandages and walkie-talkies? I mean, how, how do you receive it? Oh, I, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, I mean, I see the bigger picture, so you shouldn't take my sort of view on this necessarily as what everybody else is. But I can tell you this, on the ground, inside Syria, in the refugee camps, and also uh, outside, even amongst many of the opposition groups and leaders and activists and so on and so forth, there has been a major, major, you know, shift in opinion against the United States and the West in general. The lack of aid, the lack of tangible, real physical support. By, by aid, I mean here not just words and rhetoric and, and, and promise of money, but I mean real aid, you know, aid that that actually translates itself into something actionable on the ground. The lack of this aid, the lack of this um, engagement by the United States has been translated by many, many people as essentially a, a desire by the United States to keep Assad in power. I mean, you know, you talk to the average person on the streets of Damascus or Aleppo or or, or in the camps in, in Turkey and Jordan, they will tell you, if the West really wanted to get rid of Assad, if the Americans really wanted to get rid of Assad, they have done this a long time ago. Why haven't they done this? Well, because they want him there. So do you think this aid could be kind of too little too late? I mean, can John Kerry, the new face of John Kerry, turn any of this around? Well, I, I think that remains to be seen. There's clearly 
resentment out there. You could even hear the, hear it in the tent. If you heard Muaz Al Khatib, the head of the Syrian uh, coalition (SOC) speak today, you could sense that even as he was being told or receiving this aid, and he was being told by the international community that they were going to support him, you could sense that there was an air of frustration in his voice. In in terms of uh, when when he gave his. Uh, speech at the end, at the, in the, his closing remarks at the uh, at the press conference in Rome, and he, he he said basically, stop focusing on your concerns and focus on ours. Stop telling us how long our beards are and look at what's happening to to the people who are dying, the innocent civilians who are being slaughtered every day. Stop worrying about terrorism and worry about the regime's terrorism. So th- you could sense. I, I mean, I could certainly sense this strong, deep felt frustration by Moaz and who who is speaking for most Syrians at the international community, at the United States, for not engaging in a in a full and effective manner and to constantly harp about issues which to many Syrians right now seem peripheral or unimportant by comparison to the greater issues which are the catastrophic, you know, humanitarian crisis and the ongoing killing by the regime. Amr al-Azam, a member of the Syrian opposition. He's based here in the U.S. and is a professor at Shawnee State University. Thank you. Thank you. French diplomat-turned-best-selling author Stéphane Essel died this week in Paris. He was 95. Essel shot to fame late in life with his 2010 short manifesto And Dignez-vous, or Time for Outrage. The book became an inspiration for citizen movements. Occupy Wall Street took it to heart. It was also influential with groups in France and Spain. Well, it turns out SL managed to finish one last book before he passed away. As the world's Jerry Haddon reports, he wrote it for Spaniards. Stefan Essel's Time for Outrage has been wildly popular in Spain, selling hundreds of thousands of copies since its release. It came out just as Spain's 15th of May protest movement began gathering steam. That movement saw huge marches against government austerity measures and led to permanent protest campsites in public squares, Spain's version of Occupy. Then we spoke to him about his advice for angry people in Europe and elsewhere. They get together, they think together, and they act together. They can find the kinds of civic organizations that will put pressure on their governments and hope that their governments will do the right thing if they are sufficiently pressed to do it. Spaniards, mostly young people and students, followed this recipe. They even renamed the movement Los Indignados after Essel's book. But it's tough to see what they've accomplished two years on. Austerity here moves full steam ahead with more drastic cuts to education and health care. Unemployment is at 55 percent for the young and rising, which is in part why Essel's Spanish book editor, Ramon Perello, thought a little pep talk might boost morale. He says late last year he suggested Essel penned something specifically for Spaniards. Essel accepted, he says, delighted. He says Essel had been pleasantly surprised by the impact his bestseller had on the protest movement in Spain. He always had a warm spot for Spain. It struggled during its civil war and during the years of the Franco dictatorship. Essel himself was no stranger to hardship. He was born in Germany but moved to France where he became a resistance fighter during World War II. He was caught and sent to a concentration camp, barely escaping execution. Later, he became a French diplomat and helped write the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. His posthumous book is titled Don't Give Up, In the Trenches with the Spanish for Liberty and Progress. 
His editor, Pereyo, says the book is a further call to resistance and infused with Essel's undying optimism. It's a rigorous update, he says, taking into consideration these last two years of crisis, and it's a new call to nonviolent protest against the dictatorship of the financial markets. It exhorts people to reclaim the political process to reestablish real democracy in Spain. All of this Pereyo bets will resonate today in Spain, which not only remains deeply mired in recession, but is being battered by hundreds of political corruption scandals. Pereyo says Esel gets very specific on what he thinks Spain, led by conservative Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy, is doing wrong. Yet his final political testament contains the same core message as his earlier work. The greater and greater difference between the very wealthy and the very poor these problems are sufficiently important for us to be indignant or to be outraged or to be angry just as you want. SL's book for Spaniards, Don't Give Up, was supposed to come out in May to coincide with the two-year anniversary of the Indignados movement here. But the author's death this week has the publisher, Ediciones Destino, rushing to print as fast as it can. The book is due out in two weeks. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. We're going to revisit the crime of the century now, of the last century, that is. Some say the heist that happened almost 50 years ago was the granddaddy of them all, the Great Train Robbery. A gang of robbers inspired by the railroad stick-ups of the Wild West hit a British Royal Mail train in England and made off with close to $4 million in cash. No guns were used, and much of the stolen fortune is still unaccounted for. One of the masterminds of the heist died today at age 81. But the question for you is, where did the great train leave from, and where was it headed? And for the answer, we're going to check in with retired police constable John Woolley. He helped crack open the investigation in 1963 when he discovered the robber's hangout. That was a dramatic moment in your life, uh, Mr. Woolley, I imagine. What do you remember about those moments when you stumbled on their hideout at Leather Slade Farm? Leatherslade Farm at Brill in Buckinghamshire, yes. A small village, some 20 miles as the crow flies, from the scene of the crime at Cheddington. The suggestion that we look at Leatherslade Farm was only one of some 400 different suggestions, clues, that were coming into our police headquarters at Aylesbury every day. We went down there with no great expectation of hitting the jackpot. Right, so you walk into the hideout at Leather Slade Farm. What did you see? What did you find? Well, the house itself looked most unpromising because every one of the windows was covered over with pieces of sacking. So it looked altogether a pretty run-down and doubtful sort of property. We checked it out, didn't exactly walk in. I had to climb in through a bedroom window. But once inside, then immediately, you know, the suspicions were justified. There were sleeping bags, blankets on one of the upstairs floor windows. And when I'd let in my colleague and we searched the property, down in the cellar, I could see scores of sacks stuffed with something or other. And on pulling them out to make further inquiry, I immediately saw bank wrappers, parcel wrappers, consignment notes, all bearing the names of the famous high street banks. And it was at that moment that everything changed and I realized that I was in the great train robber's hideout. That is amazing. So um, I've heard this rumor that you also found, uh, strangely, a Monopoly board. Yes. 
It was, of course, a monopoly set that was the downfall of one of the robbers. Explain that. on the monopoly box, there was um, a fingerprint that led straight to him. Wow. And, And can we assume that they were playing Monopoly with the real money they had stolen, or were they using the Monopoly money? Well, that's part of the mythology of it. They had got... £2.6 million sterling, the equivalent in today's money of about £40 million sterling, an absolutely staggering amount. And part of the mythology is that, yes, during the course of their game of Monopoly, they introduced their own parts of, of, of their stashes. So tell us, where was the train headed and how did they stop it? Right, so the answer to your quiz question is that this was one of the overnight mail trains that crisscrossed the country. This one was headed from Glasgow in Scotland down the west coast to Euston at London. There we go. Glasgow to London, that's the answer to the geo quiz. That's it. Yeah, Mr. Woolley. I claim the prize. (laughs) You've got the prize. I've got the prize. So, Mr. Woolley, the news, as you know, today is that one of the key planners of the Great Train Robbery, Bruce Reynolds, has died at the age of 81. Do you think he took yep. secrets into the grave about the stolen cash that was never fully recovered? Yes, he will be taking some answers by wide acclaim about three of the robbers were either never truly identified or at least they were never brought to justice. Well, he would know who those people are and what their subsequent histories were. But he was undoubtedly one of the main leaders. No Mr. Big, no 100% Mr. X. It was just a very hard core of uh, criminally inclined friends. What about you, Mr. Woolley? Are you a hero? Do the good people where you live uh, see you in the street and say, oh, he's the one who cracked the case? No, I'm not a hero, not a hero at all. My bosses would much rather that I had found Leatherslade Farm the week beforehand when the robbers were still in situ. Yeah. It came a poor second finding it after they had fled. Retired Police Constable John Woolley near Buckinghamshire, England, remembering the great train robbery. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to talk to Boston. Mm, Nice guy, living up to the reputation of nice British bobbies. Now, just before the break and just before we leave the month of February, I want to share with you a letter I got from a listener earlier this month. Back on February 6th, we asked you in our GeoQuiz about the most remote location on the planet that has a zip code. That was the U.S. base in Antarctica, the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, zip code 96598. And I made some clever comment like, it's not like anyone writes letters anymore. Well, Earl Mears corrected me on that one, and rightly so. Mears is serving time at a correctional facility here in Massachusetts. He wrote in a real letter, I've been wanting to write for some time, but have had no means of getting the exact address, most importantly, the zip code. Mears continued, You said in essence that no one writes letters these days because of email, tweets, and the like. Excuse me, but there are two distinct groups for which that just isn't correct, inmates and the elderly. As a 62-year-old inmate, I'm sensitive about issues in both areas. Simply put, inmates aren't allowed any reliable avenue of communication except mail, and the advanced elderly are often technologically hampered to the point where they can't, or worse, won't, access the more modern modes. So, listeners, my apologies. If you want to write us, that is, if you put pen to paper, here is our address, the world, 
one guest street, as in Be My Guest, Boston, Mass, 02135. Again, that's The World, one guest street, Boston, Mass, 02135. And for you digital correspondents, you can reach us through, as always, various means at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. I've been following the respective careers of our next two guests for more than 10 years. Omar Sosa is a Cuban jazz pianist. Paolo Fresu is an Italian trumpet player. As soloists, they've both pushed beyond the conventional limits of jazz. But then I heard that Sosa and Fresu began a collaboration a few years ago, and I thought, wow. So when they came to a Boston jazz club a couple of weeks ago, I had to get them to our studios for a chat and maybe to perform some of their incredible music. We're down the hall from our regular studio, C7, here in the Fraser Performance Studio. And you're listening to Omar Sosa on piano and Paolo Fraser on trumpet. We'll speak with them in just a moment when they're done playing. Beautiful sounds from the album the two of you recorded, uh, Omar Sosa on piano and Paolo Fresu on trumpet. That album titled Alma, and you just played the title track, Alma. Uh, it, it's the first time I've got to say I've heard the trumpet used as a percussion instrument. <laughs> where, did, where did that idea come from? I don't know. You know so we, we like to play music and we share everything. So finally, the instrument is just uh, one instrument to put out uh, or music or Alma. And uh, we can find every kind of sound that we can play. You know, I play with my my ring. Uh, so that was the ring tapping the, on the, 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 the harmonic big cone of the trumpet. Yeah, and also the the piano percussion inside. Yeah, I mean, you dig under the hood, Omar Sosa, of the piano, and you play the strings like a harp. So we need to we need to find uh, more musicians around us. We are two persons. So what we share, yeah, the, the percussive... Is ima- imagine, in, musica di immaginazione. <laughs> music of the imagination. Yeah, because we try first to, to find us, yes, <laughs> the music, and then... <laughs> Omar Sosa, you're from Cuba. Paolo Fresco, you're from Italy. Uh, there's a, uh, a third player, Jacques Morellenbaum from Brazil, who is on the album, Alma. Uh, he's not with you. But, I mean, just you two, it gives a great kind of scope of globally what you're doing here. How did the two of you meet? Well, it was back in the days... Uh, You're not we, that old, so it can't be that long ago. Well, well yeah, no, but it's a little long. Uh, we met each other in Tallinn, in Estonia. Mm. Yeah, he was on tour. Paolo uh, was. And I was with my quartet, I remember. And we never played together, but I, I heard his music a lot before. And after, Paolo invited me to his uh, festival in Verkita, because he's from Sardinia. 
and every single artist need to play one solo concert in the middle of nowhere. He chose the place. And the place he chose for, for me was in the top of the mountain in front of a church. So I start playing, and I remember in some moment I hear a trumpet, and it was Paolo in the tree play. Whoa. <laughs> I say the same thing. Wow, this is my man. I love this guy. And now we have this guy. This collaboration for almost uh, three and a half years. Maybe more, yeah. Maybe so more. You, you made the first record together in Hamburg. Yes. And I think we both feel we have something in common. So. You've got on the same wavelength. Yes. You know, what's interesting is that Cuba and Sardinia, your home, Paolo, yeah. both islands, and islands are kind of like these magnets for things that come from all over the place, and history, you know, tells that tale. Um what do you think is the similarity between the two of you, that you both come from these islands? Well, Does it make a difference? I, I think that the island, uh, Sardinia Island, is a, is a kind of continent, you know, because it's very big. And we have, to, you know, they have a very different kind of cultures and people and influence from every, everybody. So Africa is not far. And the Sardinian influence, the culture, the music is from Spain, from um, Morocco, of course. And this is very uh, interesting because Sardinia is like, a, is like a server, you know, internet server. Everybody go through and everybody leave from there. I think that Cuba is the same yeah, thing. Pretty much, yeah, yeah the same. And, and our connection between music, I discover the canto a tenores, it's a traditional uh, style of music come from Sardinia. And the repentista, I don't know how to say this in English, they, the, the, the people improvise. Mm. Yeah, it's similar to our country music, our Guajira. This boom, boom, bing, boom, bang, boom, bang, boom, bang, boom, boom. So for me, when I, when I discovered this, I said, wow, geographically, we are really far, like you say. But in, in, our, say in our soul, we are really close. Well, pianist Omar Sosa and trumpeter Paolo Fresu, the album, if you want to hear more of it, and I'm sure you do, it's titled Alma. We're so very lucky to have had you come to the studio. So big thanks to you for coming in and playing and talking with us. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're going to play one more song for us before the end of the program. It's called Singulu. What does that mean? Oh, my God. You want me to do Lo que come mucho. No, lo que come todo. Lo que quiere comer todo. Well, it's a person. It, it tried to take everything. It's como glotón. In Spanish, it's glotón. I don't know it in English. It's a glutton. Yes, yes. A pig. Yes, yeah. yes. This. <laughs> All right. Here's Singuldu. Thank you. 
World's video team filmed Omar Sosa and Paolo Fresu in the Fraser studio. We've got the duo performing tunes like the title track to Alma, and you can see what precisely Fresu does to his horn to turn it into a gong. That video is at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, until tomorrow, I'm Marco Werman. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.